good morning, boys. You know, this is, uh, this is really nice. This is the way it all started, just like this. Uh, a little smaller than this, but uh, this brings back really, really good memories uh, 20 years ago. Uh, I was just complaining the other day. I said, you know, Memphis always gets at least one little snow each year. We hadn't had ours yet this year. Lord showed me, didn't he? Ah, yes. It's good to be out in the cold. Rob Lydon said he had a nice walk over. I know several of other, others of you did. Uh, glad you could make it. And for the rest of you, where the heck are you? <laughs> you, the, you guys who are listening in, we missed you this morning. It was a lot of fun. Hey, uh, the reason I would walk through uh, two feet of snow to get here today is because we left off 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Samuel 11, and uh, we're in 2 Samuel 12. And last week we saw what a disaster our sin is. And this week we're getting to God's grace, and so I'd be here under any circumstances uh, to be able to look at the solution to our uh, failure. Uh, boy, we really need, need that, uh, and we are desperate for it. We all need it, whether we admit it or not. And here we have God's only solution for recovering from our sin. Uh, I think one of the most important skills men have to have in any situation, in your work, in your family, and all your relationships, you've got to have the ability to recover from failure. I can't think of anything that's more important. If you think about guys who have really succeeded, for example, what they do in their work, they're guys who know how to recover from failure. You, you just can't be in business or in, in your medical practice or legal practice for 30 years and not have some major disasters come your way. You've got to be able to recover. And this is true in the spiritual life. In fact, it's more true in the spiritual life than anything else. You've got to know how to recover because you're going to cause disaster. Your sin, uh, which is continual, sometimes breaks out in really bad and destructive ways. And if you don't know how to recover, you're just not going to make it. And in the gospel, we have God's way of recovery, and it's the only way of recovery. And David illustrates this for us beautifully uh, in this chapter. Now, if you remember... Uh, in the last chapter, David sent a little message to Joab saying at the death of Uriah, now don't worry, don't let it displease you, don't let it upset you. These things happen, da 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 da, da. David trying to cover for his own sin. And then at the end of the chapter we read, but this thing displeased the Lord. So David was trying to please everybody, including himself, but the one he forgot was the Lord. And that's where that chapter closes out. Now here's David who's very, very, uh, normally very prolific in terms of his expressions, his psalms, his music. And now he is in a period where he's holding this deep secret, this secret sin. And for at least nine months, uh, while Bathsheba continues to uh, be pregnant and up until the time that the child is born. Matthew Henry uh, commented on David's state during this time, and he said, during all that time, it is certain, he penned no psalms, his harp was out of tune, and his soul like a tree that has life in the root only. That's David's life. And it seems that David kept this secret for about nine, maybe twelve months. And one can only imagine the, the despair and the terror in his soul. You can get a little hint of it if you leave your finger in 2 Samuel. Turn over to Psalm 32, and uh, David gives us an idea of what it's like to hang on to sin 
and not confess it. He says in Psalm 32, this is page 976, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. He's saying that man is blessed, who's forgiven, who doesn't cover his sin, who's not deceiving like David is right now. And then look at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He was withering. His bones were wasting away when he was silent. So he was just dying inside. Is this working yet, the overhead? It's, I don't, okay, uh, I'll try to be more explicit on our outline then. So this is David's state. And I want you to notice that even for a man who is a real believer... You can fall into this state. And David's in it, it looks like, for a good year. And for all intents and purposes, he, he in some ways looks like an unbeliever. But he's holding on to this secret sin. He's not bringing it out in the open. And he's just withering away. Now, in chapter 11, 12 times we are told that somebody sent. David sins for this. Bathsheba sent. Joab sent. Now in verse 1, you're going to get now the Lord taking over and the Lord sins. So there's an obvious contrast between chapter 11 when it's all human-driven, David's in the middle of it, orchestrating everything, manipulating everything. Now the Lord takes over. And the first thing we want to notice, Roman numeral number 1, is that grace pursues sinners. Notice that in this state, David did not send for the preacher. He should have. When you're in this state, you should sin for the one who gives you spiritual counsel. You should go to him. You should ask for time with him. David should have done that. David didn't sin for Nathan, but God sent Nathan to David. And I want you to notice that, yes, in God's providence at times, he allows us to go into a state like that. You say, why would God allow that? I don't know, but he does. It's not his fault. It's your fault and my fault. But he allows that. But what he doesn't do, he never gives up on you. And He will pursue you. And His grace will pursue you. And this whole chapter is about God's grace. It's not wimpy. It's not easy. It's not uh, light. But it's very grave grace. It's heavy grace. Grace pursues sinners. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, notice, of course, that David is the recipient of God's sending grace. He has the Word of God come to him. And the Word of God will pursue you. When you give your life to Christ, He will pursue you. But let's look also at Nathan. Uh, Nathan is a preacher. He's a prophet. He is chaplain to the king, obviously. And that's a high office. You know that even now you have a chaplain to the queen. Uh, and if you have access to the ruler of the nation, that is a high obligation. It can also get you in a lot of trouble because kings are known to get mad at their chaplains and take their heads off if they're in a bad mood. So it would have been very, very tempting when this knowledge came to Nathan, either, either by revelation or by the whisperings in the back halls of the palace. It would have been very tempting for Nathan to avoid this or to sugarcoat it or not to want to go to David. 
you know, David's, you know, sinned badly. Let's just pray that God will turn him around. Well, you know how David is when he sets his mind. He just There's no talking to him, da-da-da-da-da. Nathan didn't do any of that. And you've got to notice that in, in Nathan's approach to David, he was very explicit. Uh, oh, thank you. You know, we should read the chapter, shouldn't we? Yeah, let's do read it. Uh, I got ahead of myself. Uh, thanks for mentioning that. Let's read uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore saw God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, 
What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Amen. Well, we've seen that grace pursues sinners. Secondly, verses 1b through 6, grace convicts sinners. Grace convicts sinners. And that grace often comes through messengers, and you and I are the messengers. And we have an obligation uh, to our brothers to be those messengers. And it's very easy to excuse yourself, think all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't be the messenger of bad news, or, oh, I don't know him that well, or he'll never listen to me. Nathan didn't make any of those excuses. He had an obligation. He was David's prophet. He was the prophet of Israel. And he goes straight to David, and he's very explicit. He's very straightforward. He lays it out in a wonderful way. We're told in the Proverbs by Solomon, David's son, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So people will try to flatter you all the time, say good things about you in order to take advantage of you or to have a good appearance in your eyes. But a real friend will come to you with the Word of the Lord. And that's what Amen Bible Study is about. We need, need to have friends. We need to study the Bible together. We need to hold each other accountable for it. In our small groups, we need to listen to each other very carefully and how we're reacting to the text. And we need to interact with each other on how our lives are interacting with the text. That's what a Nathan friend really does. A Nathan uh, in Hebrew is Natan. It just means simply a gift. And uh, Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel means a gift of God. Uh, Nathan was a gift to David, whether David knew it or not. Now let's look for just a moment at how Nathan did this. First of all, Nathan told a parable. He was telling preacher stories. Now some preacher stories are not very helpful at all. They're just distractions. They're just entertaining. Maybe you can get a laugh out of somebody or get a few tears out of somebody. But a preacher story that's really helpful, an illustration that is redemptive and helpful to you, does these things. Number one, the parable enables you to enter the story. So David's entering the story that Nathan's telling, that there was a wealthy man. And David's thinking, I wonder which wealthy man he's talking about. Right here in Israel, had a guest come by that he wanted to be hospitable to. Instead of taking one of his many lambs, he took the pet little ewe lamb of his poor neighbor. And David, who's responsible for all the kingdom, he's entering into this, uh, this story. And that's what a story does. You, you put yourself into it. And when you put yourself into it, you can actually experience some of the emotions of the real life truth that the preacher's trying to teach. And so David's getting these emotions. He's feeling completely indignant about what this wealthy man did. You, you see it in the text. He says, well, that man deserves to die. Or literally it says, that man is a son of death. He's headed for death. I'm going to see to it as the Lord lives. <laughs> Just David. Godly, righteous David. Moralistic, legalistic David. 
He's going to take care of it. David's entering the story. The second thing a good preacher story does is it enables you to make an objective moral judgment because you're looking at somebody else's problem. And you know, it's amazing how wise you can become when you're looking at somebody else's problem who did the very same thing you did. It's amazing how wise you become, how decisive you are when you're dealing with somebody else's problem. When it's your problem, you've got all kinds of things that hold you back and you got all the excuses and you're looking at all the complexities and you're dealing with your own cowardice, your lack of moral courage. But when you look at somebody else's life, it's clear as day. So a parable enables you to enter in and a parable enables you to make an objective moral judgment. A good preacher story then also allows you to see yourself. And that's exactly what Nathan, Nathan, I'm telling you now, Nathan didn't dream up this story on the fly. He probably spent a week at least praying through, how am I going to talk to the king? And he's thinking, okay, I'll tell him a story. <laughs> what story could I tell him that's, that's parallel to what he just did? And I think Nathan's choice of story is beautiful, absolutely magnificent, because the parallel is right there. The moral parallel is there in the story with David. So now David can pass judgment on what the rich man did, and it's absolutely parallel to exactly what he did. And all Nathan has to say, when David comes out of the chute, he's now hanging himself with his own moral rope. And Nathan can simply say, you're not the executioner. <laughs> you're the one being executed. You're the man. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. So Nathan was ingenious in the way that he did it. He was very pastoral. He obviously had a good relationship with David. And you've got to have good relationships with people. And that's one reason you want to have good relationships with people because you can't be useful to your brothers if you're not kind, if, you're not, if you don't exercise diplomacy, if you, if you don't build relationships, you can't help people. Nathan had built a relationship, and then he went in in a very gentle way. He went into a, allowing David to see the story. He didn't hit David front on. He came in the side door helping David turn his vision toward what was right and turn the light on himself. Now, that's what a good brother does who counsels his brother. So let's take a page out of Nathan's book here. Excellent spiritual counsel. What a, what a friend Nathan was. And he just simply says, you're the man. Now, with that, uh, as I mentioned, in the ancient Near East, uh, a spiritual counsel could lose his whole life over such a comment. But Nathan was ready to do that for the sake of the Lord. It was better to do what the Lord wanted him to do uh, than to live within David's misery. See, David was miserable. If you're David's friend and you conspire with him, you're miserable too because you've got something that needs to be confronted and you're not confronting it. So now you stay up at night too having these bad dreams and wondering what to do. You too are restless. Your, your life too begins to wilt. So when you have a friend and they're in moral trouble, you're the one that the Lord is going to send. The Lord sent Nathan, and Nathan knew it. So we have to be close enough to the Lord to know when His Spirit is sending us. And then this grace convicts sinners. And He says, you are the man. And look then at the conviction uh, that Nathan offers, especially in uh, verse 7. 
He says, I anointed you, speaking on the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. He's gonna, God is now going to rehearse what he's done for you. He's anointed you. He's delivered you from Satan's messenger, Saul. He's not only done that, uh, but I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I was ready to do more. So God comes to you in your sin and points out what you've done. And then he reminds you of what he's done for you so that you can see the full weight of the violation against him. And he can say the same thing to us. I called you out of darkness into light. I anointed you as a Christian. I gave you all these privileges in life. For some of you, you have a wife. You say, she came from the Lord. Yeah. And she was a gift to you. And for some of you, he could say, I gave you children. I gave you grandchildren. For some of you, he could say, I gave you this job and this opportunity to bless others. Look at all the things I've done for you through your life. And you do this. And he says, I would have even done more for you. But then look what you've done, verse 9. Nathan is really explicit here. You despised the word of the Lord. So another thing I gave you was I gave you my own voice. I was willing to talk with you just like a friend. I talked with Moses face to face just like a friend. I'm talking with you in my word. And what did you do in my word, he says? You despised it. You held it in contempt. You treated it as though it, was, it were nothing. You treated it as though it was some oracle from some false god. You didn't treat it as the word of God. And you could look later on in verse 10, and he goes on to say, you despised me. So when we commit sin, especially this high-handed sin, and we hang on to it in the face of all of our privileges, we are showing absolute contempt for the Word of God and for God Himself. That's the nature of sin. That's how bad it is. And there's no way we can be healed unless we know how bad the disease is. What's the nature of this disease? What does it do to a person? How outrageous is it really? And Nathan was faithful to the Lord and to David. To be sure, David knew the full entail, the full extent of his sin. We need to deal with this. With every sin that you commit, it's not just what you said or what you did. Behind it is an attitude. There's a contempt for God and His Word. There's an intent to leave Him out as though He were not the Creator, not the Redeemer, and not the Sustainer of the universe. There's something deeply, there's the sin that's behind the sin that is worse than the outward sin itself. And so when you're being convicted by the grace of God, you can know it, that it really is God working deeply within you when you go to the sin behind the sin, when you go to the motives that are even more outrageous than the deed that you committed. It's one thing to kill a man. It's another thing to do it in contempt of God's Word. That's worse. So Nathan did not hold back on the full entail of David's sin, and neither does the Lord hold back with us. Now notice that grace convicts sinners, grace also disciplines sinners. Verses 10 through 12, Roman numeral number 3. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, 
David, you use the sword against Uriah the Hittite to try to manipulate and get your way. You're going to have to face the sword as long as you live. You're always going to be a man of war. Secondly, because you despise me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So David, you've decided to break the rubric of the covenant family, to go outside of relationships within covenant and go have an affair with Bathsheba and get her pregnant outside of the covenant of marriage. Okay, we're just going to let you experience some of the consequences of that. And for the lousy way in which you've been managing your household, you're going to experience evil within your own house. And he goes on to say, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And of course, we know that very thing happens. We'll see it later on in 2 Samuel. And your thing was done in secret, but this is going to be done in public. So everybody's going to see that you have been completely humiliated. And here, what's happening with grace is that, yes, we are forgiven for our sins. We'll get to that in a moment. But sometimes... God also adds a discipline that goes with the forgiveness. And some guys trying to manipulate God will talk to Him almost in this kind of fashion. Lord, I thought you forgave sins. Why am I still having to face all this? And the Lord is saying, I do forgive your sins. Don't take it lightly. But I also put a discipline upon you. And I think in this case, with David, frankly, uh, these disciplines were necessary to keep him out of worse trouble. So sometimes I think even the consequences of our own personal sin that we have to live with, even after we're forgiven, in many ways keep us from getting into more trouble than we would have if we didn't have the consequences. You think your life would be just hunky-dory, dandy, you know, and you'd be the perfect, you'd be the perfect, rich, happy man, wouldn't you? Yeah, if you just had all the money you ever dreamed of, you'd be generous. You'd be kind to everybody. Oh, you wouldn't be arrogant. You'd be very humble. You know how the movie stars always go to the microphone and the Oscars, I'm so humbled. You're not humble. You're as arrogant as they come. Uh, yeah, talking about being humbled by this award, right. Yeah, being humbled. Yeah, I'd be a humble rich man. No, you probably wouldn't. And the disciplines that come upon us by the Lord, even if they're consequences of our own actions, are often God's grace to us to keep us out of more trouble. I think it's true with David. But nonetheless... It is true, and you can see it here, that you are forgiven the eternal consequences of your sin. David said, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. He's speaking unknowingly about himself. He deserves to die, but the Lord's going to forgive his sin. But the Lord is also going to implement disciplines in his life, there, and there will be restitution often to be made for your sin. So just because you stole some money, and God forgives you for your sin doesn't mean you don't pay the money back, for heaven's sakes. So there is often restitution and there are often consequences. We'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. But grace disciplines sinners. We're not just relieved of the burden of eternal damnation or of death because of our sin, but we are placed into discipline by the Lord. Now notice, fourthly, Roman numeral number four, grace turns sinners. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Wow, this is some sentence. You can underline that in your Bible. Here is real repentance. In Hebrew, it's just two words. 
In English here, it's six words. It's very simple. I have sinned against the Lord. It's right to the point. He doesn't say, you know, I never should have gone out on that roof. I should have known. I had no idea what I was getting into. I was stupid. You know, we have to live with our dumb mistakes. He didn't say, funny thing, you know, if Abigail and I had a better sex life, this never would have happened. Uh, none of that. And those are such typical responses from guys who get into deep sin. I've seen it many times with adultery. You get all these statements. So I was really stupid. I was in a weak moment in my life. Oh, you know, I'd had a hard time in my business. And I just was in despair. And I was looking for many, blah, 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 blah. David says, I've sinned. He not only said, I've sinned. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. That's about as simple and as clear and as godly as you can get. You just underline those, those words and let's, let's keep using those words, gentlemen. When we face our sin, let's be ready to say, I've sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no cloaking, no pretense, no qualifications. And you can compare David's statements to the one that Saul makes in 1 Samuel 5, uh, 1 Samuel 15, where he's making all kinds of excuses. Well, you know, okay, so we didn't kill Agag, but <clears throat> well, we sure killed those Amalekites. Oh, well, we didn't kill all the animals, but we're going to give those as sacrifices to the Lord. Excuse, excuse, blah, blah, blah. I have sinned against the Lord. There's repentance. There is a man after God's own heart. That's the reason David is a man of God's own heart. It's not because he was sinless. <laughs> you know David well enough now to know that man's not sinless. In fact, he's far from it. In fact, when he commits sins, they're usually whoppers. <laughs> David's a big sinner. But David, David knows how to recover from a fall. And he knows the Lord. And that's the reason he recovers. He knows the Lord is gracious. We'll get to that in his, in his recovery. But... Let's turn for just a moment to Psalm 51. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel, I mean 2 Samuel 12, but turn to Psalm 51. And let's look at this psalm for just a moment because this psalm is written upon the occasion of his affair with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. So this is David's reflection upon his experience. And Psalm 51 uh, explains repentance probably better than any chapter in the Bible. And it's on this occasion. So let's take a look at it. And I want us to see here, what is real repentance? Number one, A, ask God for help. Ask God for help. David simply asked him, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Gentlemen, David committed two capital offenses. This is not some petty offense. This is mortal sin if you ever saw it. And David has the gall to ask God to wash it away. Who would pray such a prayer? After you've done something so bad, wouldn't it be better if David said, I don't think God can ever forgive me? That's what many of the German uh, 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 generals were saying after they got caught after World War II, God could never forgive us, said Albert Speer. 
And that seems to us to be the more humble way to go. You're so bad, and you know it, that even God couldn't forgive you. Well, when you say that, all you reveal is that you don't know God. David knows God, and therefore, he is ready to make a request that to any unconverted human being sounds outrageous and grandiose. Sounds like he must be on drugs. You're going to be just have it blotted out? You mean just erased like it never happened? Yeah, exactly. He just asks. And notice on the basis which he asks. He doesn't say, Lord, blot out my transgressions because, you know, of course, I did this really bad thing with Bathsheba and Uriah. But I killed Goliath, and I did that on your behalf, Lord. I did it for the people of God. And you know what? I've been putting up with these people for a long time, and I fought a lot of wars, and I'm trying to protect them. He, he didn't, that wasn't the basis of his plea. And so often guys go to the Lord, and they think somehow you can, some, like some Arab merchant in the Grand Bazaar, you can kind of deal with God, you know, and knit dicker with him. It's, it's amazing how guys will think they can dicker with God. No, it's complete surrender. You have nothing, no plea on your own. In my hands, no, nothing I bring. To thy cross alone I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, flee to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And David says, have mercy on me, O God. By your steadfast love, your chesed, forgive my sins. So there's one ground for forgiveness. It's the character of God. It's the covenant faithfulness of God to sinners. So he's claiming exactly what you and I claim in Christ. We have no claim on our own, no excuses, no qualifications, nothing that ameliorates our sin in any way whatsoever. It's strictly on the basis of God's mercy and His steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness to us. That's the plea He makes. With that plea, gentlemen, ask whatever you will. It's not outrageous. Because the grounds upon which you make the plea are infinite in their virtue. You're not making a plea based on your own life. You're making a plea based upon the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love of God. Now you can make whatever plea you will. Make it. And the man who makes it is a man who knows God. Who trusts in His character and His forgiveness, not in your ability to dicker with Him. So ask God for help. That's the first thing. That's the reason David can say, I've sinned against the Lord. I'd rather be placed into the hands of the Lord, having sinned against Him, than into the hands of the Ammonites or the Philistines. I sinned against the Lord. I'll cast myself upon His mercy. Ask Him for help. Secondly, make a sincere confession. Now let's look at this. There's several ways in which David does this in Psalm 51. First of all, he says, I did it. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I did it. Nobody else did it. Bathsheba didn't do it. No matter how she may have been contorting herself out there or modeling herself or showing me her body or no matter how unsatisfying my sexual relationship may have been with, with uh, Abigail, I did it. It's all me. So that's the first part of his confession. He takes responsibility for what he did with no qualifications. And you can tell when someone has not yet gotten to do business with the Lord, when you're talking with them, and they're still making excuses. 
As long as you're making excuses or the person you're talking to is making excuses, if you happen to be the Nathan in this deal, you can just know they've not been brought to the Lord yet. They've not really fully, they're not going to recover fully because they have not owned what they did. Secondly, I offended God. I offended God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, folks, this is amazing that he says this. He has sinned royally against Bathsheba. He has sinned royally against Uriah the Hittite. He sinned against the child of Bathsheba. He sinned against all of Israel because the misery that comes upon his house is also experienced by Israel. He sinned against tons of people. How can he possibly say, against you and you only have I sinned? He says it because by comparison. Yes, of course he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Israel. But by comparison. His sin was against the Lord, and that's an infinitely weighty violation because you sinned against an infinitely glorious God. So the beginning of your recovery is to realize who it is you've offended. Remember, when Saul was on his way on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians that were in Damascus, he had been persecuting Christians right and left, he had been putting them to death because they're Christians. I mean, he sinned against the church. But when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, what did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul had to realize his big sin was a personal transgression against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our sin is. And you can't recover from it until you know what you've done. And so if you're holding out against a brother or you're gossiping against someone or you're cheating someone in business, you're sinning against the Lord. It's a, it's a contempt of His Word. That's where David focuses. Why? He's a man after God's own heart. And the one relationship he cares about more than any other is his relationship with the Lord. I offended God. And then notice what his concern is. He says, that you may, look in verse, the end of verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David's interest now, as a man after God's own heart, is to justify God's discipline of David. So all these things that Nathan said, the sword is going to be against your house, evil's going to be raised up in your house, your wives are going to be publicly uh, attacked, assaulted sexually by someone in pure in wide open space, all of that, David is saying before God, may your name be justified. You are right. So the converted and the forgiven man is immediately interested in justifying God. That's the reason that when Zacchaeus comes down out of that tree, that sycamore tree, the first thing he does is to claim that he's going to pay back fourfold those against whom he's stolen. Why? Because that's what the, the commandments of God say in Exodus. That if you steal a lamb, you pay it back four times. That's what David was saying in this. Why did Zacchaeus do that? He wanted the world to know that, he was, that Jesus Christ was going to his house and that Jesus Christ was holy and God is justified. And Zacchaeus wanted to make it clear that God's law is right. He wanted to justify the law of God, not himself. And that's, that's at the very heart of the experience of repentance is that you're justifying the ways of God and you're giving Him credit for being right and you're wrong. 
So that's what David is doing. I offended God. Then notice in verse 5, we can call this, that's just like me. (laughs) That's just like me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David is not saying, you know, my mother, she was such a problem. Uh, You know, if she hadn't been such a bad sinner, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am one who is guilty of original sin. He's saying, he's not only confessing what he did, he's confessing his nature. And he's not saying it as an excuse. Well, you know, everybody screws up. We're all fallen. That's not the way he means it. He said, Lord, I've offended you in such a way. It's not just what I did, this awful sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. It's a sin for me even to be alive before you. Because I'm a fallen man and sin did my mother conceive me. I I was conceived in sin. I was brought forth in sin. I was a sinner as I was conceived. I was a sinner as I was born. I was rightly under your judgment when I was conceived in the womb. That's the reason it's ridiculous for us to say, isn't it unfair for God to send people to hell? It's not unfair when you're conceived as a rebel. You're a very rebel by your nature. And so what the Bible teaches us is that from the womb, you are worthy of God's wrath. That's the reason that Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we're all children of wrath. We're born into this world that way. And you say, that's not fair. Oh, yes, it is. Adam and Eve had a chance and they blew it and we're their children. And we are the heirs and we prove it from the moment we come out in public, the first day of our birth, we prove how self-centered we are. We're broken people from birth. And David's going back to that in his confession. Isn't it amazing? He goes back to his conception. And he says, Lord, I'm, I'm wrong before you even by my nature. And then in verse 6, he says, I have no excuse. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says, you desire truth in the inward parts. You you desire integrity. You desire love from the heart. And I've been taught, and I know better. That's what he's saying. So you see the nature of a real confession? It's sincere. There's no holding back. There's no excuses. Then notice... See, we not only ask God for help, make a sincere confession, but we seek full restoration. We're not looking for partial restoration. We're not looking for permission to come in the back door of the church after the service starts and, and leave before it's over and not have to show our face to anybody because we're still half ashamed of our sin. No. David doesn't want any of that. He wants full restoration, being brought back, into the presence of God and His people with no shame, no guilt for which He's responsible. That's the goal. You say that's outrageous. Yes, the world would consider that outrageous. But remember, we're dealing with a merciful, covenant-keeping God who promises that that's what He's doing. So if He promises it and you trust Him, you honor Him by taking Him up on His offer and showing that you trust Him. First of all, David looks for complete cleansing, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Rob Lydon told me just a moment ago, and walking over here, how beautiful it was. Well, why was it so beautiful? Isn't it just like any other day? No, everything's covered with snow. And uh, probably most of us will go out in front of our houses today and get a little picture of the house and the, the yard with just 
you know, all those imperfections just covered up with snow. And David says, I have a dream <laughs> that God is so gracious that a very wicked man like me could be covered white as snow. And I'm not talking about gray hair, gentlemen. I'm talking about purity in the eyes of God, pure, white as snow. David asked for this, purge me so that I become white as snow. This is full restoration. It's not some partial thing. You don't come back in as a second-class citizen. You come in as a man of God, a man after God's own heart. Amazing. Secondly, abundant gladness. Lord, I don't want to come back in. And yes, you consider me pure, but I still have to act like I'm miserable. And if you look in the Muslim religion, you know, every year you got this month and you're beating yourself on the back with a whip, sometimes the chains, trying to be miserable. Let's get myself real miserable, and I can show you how sorry I am for my sin until I bleed. And in even in, some, in the history of the Christian tradition, we've had folks who thought it was virtuous to make themselves hurt and bleed and somehow pay for their sins. David's saying, no, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken. My bones were wasting away. I was feeling crushed inside. Let them rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Give me gladness, Lord. So full restoration is not only knowing that you have a position that is white as snow with the Lord, but He fills you with joy again. The results of prayers of confession should be abundant joy. That's the reason that Second Presbyterian, after we confess our sins with a corporate prayer of confession, and then we have our private prayers of confession in silence, and then the preacher announces that you are pardoned so that you can remember that, yes, all of our sins are forgiven. What do we normally do? We normally arise and sing a hymn of gratitude. Why? Because we're full of joy. We believe that the Lord actually has forgiven our sins. We are really at peace with Him. We really believe that we're covered white as snow. Well, of course, we're going to burst forth with joy. So David's saying, I don't want to go back to church and be kind of half-hearted. I want to sing the hymns again. I want to be full of joy and know who I am in the Lord. And then thirdly, notice this restoration includes spiritual renewal. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know how it is if, if you've really done something wrong. Maybe you've you know, been on the, online, you've been watching some pornography, and you just feel filthy. And you're thinking, I want to be white as snow. I want to be filled with joy. I, I want to be renewed. And you know what it's like not to be renewed. Your spirit just feels dull. You just can't get it going again. You just don't seem to have any life or vibrancy or energy. Pray for spiritual renewal. When you're being restored... When you are truly repenting of your sin, He fills you with a renewed energy for His worship and His work. You should expect that. You should ask for it as part of the restoration process. And fourthly, notice this, restored intimacy. David's saying, I don't want to be a stepchild in your house. I don't want to be a has-been. I don't want to be a, per a son who's not able to have a conversation with his dad again. I don't want to be a child who is not really received as a full member that's loved in the household. No, Lord, I want to crawl back into your lap. I want to be your, I want to be your blessed and, and favored son again. 
Cast me not away from your presence, he says. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So take me back and make me intimate in my relationship with you. That's what he's asking for. So you can see that full, healthy, robust repentance leads to a revival of your spirit. You should be praying for this and expecting this in your life. Then notice uh, D. We've seen that the experience of true repentance, we ask God for help, we make a sincere confession, we seek full restoration. Fourthly, we re-engage God's mission. First of all, we witness with zeal. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. As Matthew Henry says, penitents should be preachers. So how do you become a preacher? You've got to be a penitent. So you want to tell others how to do it because you've done it. Oh, yeah, we, we know you've committed the whopper sin. You don't have to tell us about that. We know. But can you recover from a fall? Have you recovered? Have you found the way home? If you have, tell other sinners about it. That's what gospel proclamation is all about. It's one sinner who found the way to recovery telling another sinner how to be recovered. So you can't really have a ministry until you enter into real confession, real repentance, real renewal. So David's saying, Lord, if you'll renew me, I'll preach to everybody. I may not have been to seminary like Nathan, but I'll tell my story my way of what you've done for me. That's what David's saying. Secondly, notice that we worship with brokenness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You, you say, well, I thought singing was for people who had a good voice. I thought singing was for those who could carry a tune in a bucket. No! Singing is for those who have been forgiven and renewed and restored. That's who sings. So if you've been forgiven and renewed and restored, you don't have to be able to sing on key. Now, if you can't sing on key, keep it down a little bit. Don't distract your neighbor. But sing. Because singing is to come forth from people who know they've been forgiven. And that's the reason we sing in church. It's, we join the angels. They haven't been forgiven because they didn't sin. They're amazed that we join them. They're, they're looking down from heaven saying, these sinners, you're singing with us. It's amazing. God's grace is so amazing that sinners would sing our songs. In fact, they're singing things that we can't even sing about. They're singing about being forgiven. I wonder what that's like. And they're looking down at us, what's that like? And we say, angels, you got to listen to us now. The God that you worship in all of your angelic perfection is perfect in His grace and forgiveness. And let us tell you about it, angels. You can't believe the experience of knowing that you are damned and you deserve to die. And this, this God has spared you death and given you life forevermore. Let us tell you, angels, about it. We become preachers even to the angels. We worship with brokenness. The sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. If you just humble yourself, He will not despise you. He will take you in, and you will be a worshiper. And thirdly, notice that we work with vision. David's not saying, oh boy, now that I'm forgiven, I can make some more money. I can fight some more fights. I can rebuild my reputation. No, David is taken up with Zion. I've been restored. 
to work for the glory of Zion, the people of God and the city of God. That's his concern. So when you're restored, remember, you're restored uh, for uh, your witness to others. You're restored for your worship. You're restored for your work in the kingdom. That's the reason you're restored. And notice that all happens with David. Now let's quickly in the last two minutes cover the rest of this. I've given you the Westminster Shorter Catechism definition of repentance, which I do like a lot. I wish we had time to walk through it. But go through it phrase by phrase and see the various components of repentance. In your small groups, I think your time would be well spent if you put some of your time on discussing the individual phrases of this Westminster Shorter Catechism comment. Fifthly, grace saves sinners. First of all, we do not receive the death we deserve. We are forgiven. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. He's put it away. He's not just stored it up in a... He's not just filed it. He's put it away. Buried it in the bottom of the sea. You're not going to die. You're not going to be executed, David, for these two capital offenses. He's put it away from you. So grace saves us, and we should be amazed by this. And we so easily pass it off by saying, well, you know, it's my business as a sinner to sin, and it's God's business as God to forgive, and here we go, we're just marching on through time. No, you need to be amazed again that a God who by every right should execute you has spared you and made enormous promises to you. That's the first thing. Grace saves us by not giving us what we deserve. And B, grace saves us by our submitting humbly to God's providence. All of these things Nathan outlined for him about the death of his child, and David submits to it. And the people can't understand. They say, David, why is it that when your child was alive, you were mourning, and now the child is dead, you're worshiping? And David says, I mourned because I was seeking the Lord while he was still alive. And I know the Lord well enough to know he may grant relief and let this child live. David knew the Lord. That's the reason he sought him through fasting and mourning and prayer during the child's life. But now that he's dead, the Lord has obviously decided he's not going to stay here and I'm going to go worship the Lord. And I see this so many times with Christian families who lose a loved one and you got the funeral on Saturday and you got the family together sitting together in their pew on Sunday. They clean themselves up, they dress themselves up, they go to the house of God and they give Him His due. They worship Him. Even with tears of sorrow still streaming down their cheeks, they worship the Lord. That's exactly what David did. He's a man after God's own heart. And when the Lord disciplines us, let the Lord do as He will. And I will submit to Him and worship Him. And instead of pouting against the Lord, Lord, I can't believe you did that to an innocent child. I just don't know if I can ever worship you again. Get yourself up, clean yourself up, bow down before the Lord of the universe and worship Him. You're not dead because He's gracious to you. He disciplines you because you not only deserve it, but you need it. And He's your Father. And everything is perfectly designed for you. David knows this. He's a man after God's own heart. And you see it in the way he submits to providence. Lastly, we serve others graciously. 
And look at how gracious God is, giving Solomon, a child that he loves, Jedediah. The Lord loves him. God is gracious to David. David comforts Bathsheba. He not only goes to worship God, but now he ministers to Bathsheba. And the Lord is gracious to him. Now, you see full circle here. We get into big trouble because of our sin. But God has a big plan of salvation that fully delivers us and makes us the chief worshipers for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. We so desperately need it every moment of our lives. And as we so often tend to hide our sins from others, pretending to hide them from ourselves, and thinking falsely that we can hide it from you, we wither away and our bones ache within our being. Lord, restore us, create in us new hearts, Bring us the spirit of revival and renewal. Give us the confidence that you will wash away our sins. You will make our lives white as snow. And you will love us and receive us again into your intimate fellowship. Grant us this gospel confidence today that we may walk with you and be useful to our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.